Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network podcast series. I'm your host today, Ari Barbalat. I am blessed to be in dialogue with Professor Natalia Molina. Professor Molina is Distinguished Professor of American Studies and Ethnicity at University of Southern California and will be Interim Research Director at the Huntington Library this summer. Natalia is the author of the new book, A Place at the Nayarit, How a Mexican Restaurant Nourished a Community, published by University of California Press 2022. Natalia, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. I'm so happy to be here, Ari. Thank you. To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? Were there any formative events in your life that stimulated the scholar you would later become? The book, A Place at the Nayari, is in very much uh, an homage to where I grew up. I grew up in Echo Park, a, a neighborhood in, near downtown Los Angeles, and it's a geographic and cultural crossroads. And so when I was growing up, it was a working class area uh, populated by the people, the kinds of people that had populated it for now a hundred years. Uh, people kind of on the margins, artists, hippies, uh, LGBTQ community, immigrants, working class whites. And so that very much shaped my early lessons about what I learned about race. So in many ways growing up, I thought of race as a relational concept. You know, I didn't grow up in an area where they're just you know, only Latinos, um, only African-Americans, only Asian-Americans. I understood that because we were in a working class area that was often stigmatized, you know, it's, it's now been gentrified. And so it's, the reputation of Echo Park has changed somewhat. But growing up, it was the kind of area, working class area that people would stigmatize as a kind of barrio. And yet I saw that regardless of race, ethnicity, including my white neighbors, that they were also stigmatized. And so I, I learned the role of class 
in terms of shaping our urban narratives, our moral panics. And yet once we left the neighborhood, such as once we got into school, the, the kids, you know, depending on race and ethnicity might be tracked differently. The stories that we were told about our opportunities for college differed. And so for me, all these lessons were really important in terms of how I think about race. And so, you know, while I do Latino studies, while I do immigration studies, much of my work is thinking about race relationally. What we know about the category of Mexican is informed by what it means uh, to be white, to be black, to be indigenous, to be Asian American. What inspired you to write this book? What do you hope readers will gain from it? I finished my book, How Race is Made in America, Immigration, Citizenship, and the Power of Racial Scripts in about uh, 2014. And I was asked to give a keynote at, at California State University Northridge CSUN about California. Um, and the idea was that they would be able to print that keynote in their journal. And so I needed original material. I'd been thinking about Echo Park for a while, about how it was changing with gentrification, about how when I was growing up, the narratives of Echo Park were about this as a stigmatized area. So for example, you know, when I left the neighborhood and went to UCLA, people would ask where I was from. Um, they would kind of say, oh, Echo Park, that neighborhood, or, you know, same when I went to graduate school at the Uni University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And yet now, uh, when I would come visit my family, for, you know, I would come into town, I was teaching at UC San Diego, people would say, oh, you're in Echo Park, what Airbnb are you in? I'm like, I'm at my mom's house. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, you know, I'm like, people live there. They're gener they're, there have been families there for generations. And so I really wanted to, sh and, and I would often get the question, like, you must be so excited about the changes going on in Echo Park. You know, and of course, like many of us, and especially like many in academic, I, yes, I'm excited when I can get a good coffee. Uh, I can go somewhere and have somewhere to read. And Echo Park has a lovely bookstore, Stories Bookstore. But I also knew that with this change that many people were being priced out uh, in terms of homes, in terms of businesses. And so I wanted to tell that story. And I wanted to tell the story of, you know, there was culture before Blue Bottle Coffee got here. Uh, there was a, a vibrant life, a vibrant community, cosmopolitan community, walking community before some of these bars and restaurants moved in. And so that was a big reason why I wanted to tell the story of a place at the Nayeti. Where will proceeds of this book be going? During the pandemic, I, uh, you know, like many of us, were just appalled trying to figure out, you know, what's going to happen. How are, you know, how are communities living on the margins already having precarious lives? How are they doing? And one of the restaurant, one of the organizations I started donating to was called Know Us Without You. And what they do is they give um, food relief to hospitality workers, people working in bars and restaurants that are undocumented, because as we know, during the pandemic, many people received relief from the government, the state government or the federal government, but if they were undocumented, they did not. 
And yet on the other hand, what did we all say? Yeah, oh, I can't wait to go back to the, my favorite restaurant. I can't wait to go back and have a drink at my favorite bar. I can't wait to meet up with friends and or family at our favorite spot. And so I thought it was really important to put a spotlight on that um, and the important work that they're doing. And so the proceeds of a place at the Nayeri about a restaurant will go to restaurant workers through Know Us Without You for the year 2022. That's amazing. I'm, I'm really impressed with you for making that contribution. And this sounds like an absolutely superb cause. So thank you on behalf of our listeners and anonymous people. Um, thank you for doing that. That's incredibly noble of you. I will also say, um, I don't think of it as noble as much as I, it really, <laughs> it just really angers me when people will say, oh, that is amazing that you wrote this beautiful book about a Mexican restaurant. And I love Mexican food and I love Mexican restaurants and I love going to ethnic restaurants. And yet on the other hand, um, we're not willing to support undocumented workers in California it, it's no secret. 10% of our workforce is the undocumented. We rely on the undocumented to bring food to our tables at every step from the agriculture that they pick in 110 degree weather during wildfires in the Central Valley to being back a house now off in front of house at restaurants. So to me, it's also just putting it out there of if we want restaurants, this is something that we need to support, embrace, and be honest with ourselves about. Absolutely. I could not agree more. Thank you for saying that. How does your book contribute to Latinx studies? I started off as a gender studies major, as an undergraduate. And what I loved about gender studies was that it looked at different racial and ethnic communities and you know, mainly through the prism of you know, gender, but um, also that intersectionality. And so even in terms of how I came to Latino studies, even through my, you know, I told you about my, my personal life growing up in a mixed racial and ethnic neighborhood, but then academically, I've always looked at race inter you know, through um, the theory of intersectionality, through, um, you know, looking at it relationally. And so my understanding of Latino studies is very much that, um, you know, my first book, Fit to be Citizens, Public Health and Race in L.A., started off as a Latino studies book looking at the Mexican community, but I thought, oh, you can't really understand Latinos in LA without understanding Chinese and Japanese communities and that the ways that the laws and practices directed at these groups are now directed at Mexicans. In the same way for a place at the Nayeri, the other thing that motivated me to write the book was that I had been teaching some version of like race in the city, race and urban studies, ethnic studies, urban studies for about 15 years when I started. I started off in an ethnic studies department. And so um, I didn't teach Latinos in the city. I taught race in the city. And what I would see in many of the books, um, and it makes sense and I completely respect it and I build on the work of these scholars, is that we tend to look at race in these silos 
you know, African-Americans in South LA and, and space. So not only is race, do we study race in silos, we study space in these silos. So African-Americans in South Los Angeles, Latinos in East Los Angeles, um, you know, uh, gays and lesbians in Silver Lake. And yet we don't live our life in these silos to be sure these areas do have these demographic concentrations. But there are also ways in which communities are uh, living much more interactive lives. And so for me, I wanted to show what it was for a Mexican community, Mexican-American community to thrive outside of an ethnic enclave. And so I wanted to take this uh, Mexican restaurant that's in a geographic and cultural crossroads and show what that means when Mexicans are interacting with, with whites, uh, with movie stars, right? So it's a Mexican restaurant, but it's not just like this, this quaint Mexican restaurant. Um, it's also this cosmopolitan space that people came to from all over. And I wanted to show... Um, what it meant for Latino studies to intersect with the LGBTQ literature and community. You know, to be sure there's wonderful literature around these groups in Latino studies, but they're often seen as like, these are the books that we turn to when we do queer studies on our syllabus, instead of incorporating it throughout. Many of the workers at the restaurant were, were uh, gay men, and they were able to live their lives uh, you know, relatively openly in the 50s and 60s, though there were a lot of consequences for that, um, you know, legally in terms of laws against homosexuality, homosexual acts, in terms of if you were not a citizen and you were arrested for you know, one of these, these charges, uh, one of these charges, then you might not be able to get your green card, your visa, uh, you might even be deported. And so I wanted to get at both of these things, the ways in which Latino studies is also, you know, the studies of our cities in general, um, that the immigrants, immigrants are often at the heart of urban studies, often at the heart of American studies and U.S. history. What does your book teach us about inequality? I think for all my books, I've been very interested in the way in which people's lives are shaped through structural opportunities or through, through, through structural forces. So you know, my first book looked at how public health officials, how medical racialization shaped the lives of immigrants, Chinese, Japanese, and then Mexicans. My second book looked at how immigration um, laws officials shaped the lives of Mexicans in relationship to other groups. And I talk about you know, this immigration regime that was strengthened after the passage of the 1924 Immigration Act. For this book, I was very interested then, you know, after looking at so many prejudices, so many structural inequalities from daily slights to large-scale terror campaigns like mass deportation, um, what did it mean to look at the rich three-dimensional lives that immigrants lived? So this book mainly takes place in the 1950s and 60s. It mainly looks at workers. And if we look at Latino studies, uh, 
during this time period, much of the work is focused on workers and their stories are told through institutional sources. And of course, you know, I completely understand why let, you know, immigrants don't readily leave behind archives. Um, you know, the, the, we're, we often have to tell their stories through these institutional records and scholars do a wonderful job of reading those sources against the grain. And what I mean by that is, so for example, a scholar that might see, um, or you know, I'll, I'll give you an example from my first book, Fit to be Citizens, where we see that these health clinics set up these clinics in the 20s in Los Angeles that are telling women, you're not feeding your children properly, you're not bathing them properly, you're not giving them proper health care. And then they complain that why don't they come to our clinics? Of course, they don't come to their clinics, because that is their way of resisting. So, you know, you can take an institutional source and still tell the story of the community through that source by reading it against the grain. But here I had the opportunity to talk about, you know, working class Mexicans as workers and how they were able to live these full lives. And so it's a way of getting at this inequality, but then showing those moments of joy of laughter, of you know, life where people find those spaces where they can become their full selves. They might be, you know, a, a, a nanny during the day, but they come to the restaurant on a Sunday with their family and somebody now serves them. You might be a bartender as my dad was, um, but you come to the restaurant at the end of the shift and you're able to sing along with the trio. So, you know, Mexicans access has always been shaped uh, to public space has always been shaped uh, by the structural inequality. It's shaped where they could live, work, worship, play, go to school, and even be buried. And by looking at this semi-public semi space, a restaurant, we're able to tell the story of inequality and how people dealt with it. How does your book contribute to our knowledge of the history of Los Angeles? So for my book, Fit to be Citizens, Public Health and Race in Los Angeles, I was able to tell that story by looking at archives, going through archival documents, you know, planners reports, city council meetings, LA County Board of Supervisors meetings. Uh, the Huntington Library has a collection by one of the supervisors, John Anson Ford, National Archives records. And, you know, this is my third book. So I thought, I, I got this. I'm going to go through those archives with different questions, a different lens. And I'm going to be able to tell the story of Echo Park because nobody had really written a story of Echo Park. There are wonderful uh, examples of some literature, a pictorial book that's helpful, but no histories of Echo Park. And what I saw in the archives was that there was an absence when it came to Echo Park. You know, Echo Park didn't experience the same kind of racism or structural segregation that other parts of town did. Um, part of it was it was a much more mixed neighborhood. Part of it was that uh, it just seems to be overlooked. There were no major municipal projects, even though you know it's in this basically the city center. Um, so I wanted to get at what does the city look like from the perspective of immigrants? And I didn't even really have these documents to read against the grain. And so um, I did oral interviews. 
I looked at uh, Mexican newspapers. And what, it sh what we come up with then is a view of Los Angeles, not from the city, the people that planned it, but the people who experience it, the people who work there, live there, sit on a park bench, use the public library, uh, go to its local urban anchors like restaurants and how they're able to form community across racial and ethnic lines. How does your book advance our understanding of the culinary arts? When um, I started the book, you know, one as I did what one does, I read a lot. And so I read a lot of the literature on, on food, on restaurants, outside of academia as well, just food writers. And, and there's so much good work out there. Um, but one thing is that we don't often see Mexican food as contributing to the culinary arts. So I really appreciate your question, Ari. Uh, you know, LA is known as a top restaurant town. And when I was growing up, in Los Angeles, I'm a third generation Angelino, uh, third generation Echo Parkian. Many of the restaurants we talked about as being kind of the top restaurants were on the West side. That has changed now as you know, both our understanding of ethnic food has expanded. Um, and also Los Angeles become, has become gentrified. So parts of LA that didn't have these kind of restaurants, these top end restaurants when I was growing up, um, are now in different parts of town. But a lot of it has changed, especially in LA, because of the role of critic, food critics, of advocates like Jonathan Gold, who wrote for the Los Angeles Times, uh, who passed away a few years ago, and yet is one of our, our LA heroes, our, our food heroes, um, food writer heroes in general, uh, just an amazing, amazing writer. And he would go to taco trucks in East LA. And he has this great feature where he you know, ate at all the restaurants down Pico Boulevard, many of them ethnic restaurants. Um, another person who advocated uh, early on was Anthony Bourdain, who has also now passed. And while he's known as a, a food writer and going all over the world, he was really clear that you know, Mexican workers were often the ones who were staffing back of house. And you know, now that's changed to, I'd say more Latino workers and were often the ones who helped them out. So what I hope to change is one, an understanding of Mexican food. You know, we still want that relatively cheap taco. We, you know, we want to pay $2 for that taco. Um, and we have a lot of media now in LA, LA Taco, uh, the food writer, uh, Gustavo Arellano, who's now a columnist for the LA Times. You know, he, he wrote a book on Taco USA. Lots of uh, folks, Roy Choi, um, Evan Kleinman on Good Food. They have all been doing work to show that just because this food is inexpensive, doesn't mean it's cheap food. And that the, the way that uh, these regional just delights contribute to LA's uh, food landscape should be on par and should be valued with some of these top restaurants. Why was the restaurant named Nayarit? What was its connection to Nayarit in Mexico? My grandmother, Natalia Barraza, after whom I'm named, 
immigrated to Los Angeles at the age of 21 in 1921. And she was from the state of Nayarit. And I consider it, I never met her. She passed before I was born. So I cannot ask her why, but I consider it a political act that she named the restaurant, the Nayarit. Because at this time, many restaurants and you know, to today are named um, in a more, more generic um, all-encompassing names and, and you know the names of restaurants I love including one in Los Angeles called El Sarape right um, El Sombrero um, you know El Coyote all these are you know these are restaurants that we love in Los Angeles yeah El Sombrero I made up <laughs> but you know these kind of generic names but Nayari is the state that she's from and Nayari is also uh, taken from the indigenous language of the indigenous peoples from our state of Nayarit, uh, the, the Kora Indians. And so one, she is promoting a regional identity by naming her, her restaurant the Nayarit. It is also telling you that the food there is going to be regional. It's not going to be generic. She does, she did have some of those dishes on on her menu um, in terms of kind of a, a, a universal taco enchilada combo plate, but she had regional dishes. So there is that. Two, she's telling you she's embracing the indigenous, um, her indigenous background and heritage, uh, not necessarily personally, but of the state. And that is a political act because for many years, while Mexicans were legally white because of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848, when Mexico ceded a third of its land to the United States. And so they were admitted into the union as citizens. There had been efforts at the local state national level to strip them of that citizenship. And one of the ways was by stressing their indigenous roots. And so the logic was if our indigenous people can't have citizenship, why should Mexicans be able to? And the other thing that calling the Nayari afforded people, and this came up in many of our interviews, was that customers would exact, exact, ask that, Ari, what you just did, which is, what does Nayari mean? What is Nayari like? Uh, do you still have family in Nayari? And it was a way of prompting a conversation. And it was a way of connecting with the customers. And it was a way to tell the story of Mexico Lindo through naming the restaurant the Nayari. Can you describe the social geography of the state of Nayarit in Mexico as context? So, so Nayari, um, and this also will show you the influence on the, the restaurant. Uh, Nayari is a coastal state. Uh, it's part of the central plateau of Mexico. And so the other reason to name the Nayari is, you know, many of the Mexicans from the 50s, 60s were from the Central Plateau. Like now we're seeing more restaurants from, uh, more immigrants from Oaxaca, and especially in California and Los Angeles, you know, uh, people call it Oaxaca, California. Uh, but during this time period, many of the workers were from the Central Plateau. And it's a coastal state. Um, you know, when we go visit, we fly in, when we still go visit our family in Mexico, we fly into Mazatlan and drive two hours south, or you can fly into Puerto Vallarta and drive two hours north. And uh, the, the 
food is very much influenced by its location as well. And so that was why you saw seafood on the menu at the Nayeri, which was uncommon at the time because it was difficult to procure. But even like things like dried shrimp, um, Acaponeta, where she was from in particular, she's from, there's two neighboring towns, Acaponeta and Tecuala. And she was from Tecuala, but her half-sister uh, Goya lived in Acaponeta and they became very close. And she basically adopted Acaponeta as her hometown. It's where she would visit. It's a, you know on one of the main highways. So while it's a small town, a lot of people pass through it. And so, um, you know, while it's a town, not a major city, you know, she's not from Mexico City. It's a bit of a cosmopolitan place in terms of people passing through it, in terms of its accessibility to Mazatlan, um, in terms of its access to the beach. And so, you know, Nayari is a place that once people go to and, you know, experience the beaches of San Blas, you know, that people write songs about, that people really have a connection to, they remain tethered to it. Can you comment on the decor, interior design, and aesthetics in the Nayarit restaurant? What do they reveal with the restaurant? When my grandmother started her first restaurant near Alvera Street, it was a very small restaurant. You know, here she was, a single woman, starting up her own restaurant in the wake of World War II, you know, writing that World, World War II prosperity. And it was so sparsely decorated that her neighbor, Isaac Ranger, who owned a furniture store, loaned her the chairs that he wasn't selling um, and said, you know, if, if you make a profit, you can buy them. And so she always depended on, on cultural brokers to help her out, um, to connect her to wider LA, to, you know, to help her out. Um, then she, when that restaurant was closing, she could have gone east to East Los Angeles, but instead she chose to go west, you know, two miles west to Echo Park. And again, she had to start that restaurant with very little money. Um, and so the initial decor was rustic with kind of, you know, you know, the wooden booths, uh, the, the women customers who wore stockings would get them snagged in a nail now and then, but she always embraced the art of Mexico, but a specific, specifically of Nayarit. So, you know, art from the Cora Indians, art from, you know, those kind of ojos de Dios. And as the restaurant gained in prosperity, then she had uh, things like, you know, the vinyl booths and she had them in like a bright pink and a bright, bright green. Um, and she, you know, made sure that she decorated it with, again, that you, things that would make you ask about Mexico and specifically about Nayarit. What was on the menu at Nayarit? What culinary options were available? She wanted to highlight seafood because that's a staple of the cuisine in coastal Nayarit. I joke that when we go to Acaponeta to visit our family, I feel like a Mexican forest gump. You know, we have so many shrimp-based dishes shrimp soup, shrimp empanadas, shrimp albondigas, shrimp tamales. Um, and this is year round, whereas, you know, in the States, you see that oftentimes in the menus, Mexican menus, more around uh, Easter uh, because of the you know, Catholic tradition not to eat meat. Uh, yet, you know, these things were difficult to procure in the United States in the 50s and 60s. But when she could, 
she might serve a whole fish, uh, pescado sarandiado. And that's something that I hadn't seen on menus here, you know, really until my adulthood, right? Um, this is now the kind of dish, this, this pescado sarandiado, which is a whole fish and it's seasoned with sauces, it's wrapped in foil and it's cooked on an open flame. When we go to Nayarit, this is what we order when we go to the open air restaurants on the beaches of Nayarit. And I didn't see it served in Los Angeles until I went to Orange County's Taco Maria, just a beautiful restaurant that won a Michelin star restaurant actually for its adaptations of regional cuisine in 2019. And so she was able to serve dishes like this. She also did not shy away from, you know, offering some dishes that would appeal to uh, non-Mexican clientele, kind of a, a taco uh, enchilada combo plate. Um, but she would do little things where she could to bring in that distinctiveness of Mexican cuisine. So she might garnish her dishes with a queso fresco, right? That soft, curd light, white Mexican cheese rather than cheddar cheese, kind of this, you know, just orange cheese. Uh, she would regularly drive to Tijuana. And, you know, that's about a 300 mile round trip from Los Angeles. And that's where she would procure her special ingredients. She would get the corn husk for tamales. She would get canned chilies because they lasted longer than fresh ones. She would get bars of chocolate to make uh, hot chocolate. She would even get uh, mole paste, this combination of chilies and peanuts, uh, sesame seeds, cocoa, cinnamon, to serve as a base for her, mo her mole for the, her enchiladas or to stir the, stew the chicken in. And you know, some might say, oh, well, that's cheating because you know, you're starting with a jar. But making mole from scratch, if you've ever made it, you know it's laborious, it's time intensive, and it's very messy. Um, it could take days. But this way, she was able to get a head start on that and then add her own ingredients to that, you know, her own homemade chicken broth or tomatoes and other spices. And this way, this dish that's usually reserved for special occasions could be on the menu on a regular basis. That menu sounds incredible. I will also say, not, not just to you, Ari, even there was this uh, Mexican DJ uh, Martin Becerra, and he used to have this show during the daytime. So they called it like the housewives uh, uh, show or that he was the housewives DJ that would you know, broadcast during the day. But on the weekends, he would often be the MC at the Million Dollar Theater in downtown Los Angeles, which is where many um, not just Mexican acts, but Latin American Singers would go through mariachi groups, different musicians, people from, you know, performers from Spain. And he would MC. My grandmother paid to run ads on his radio show, but at the Million Dollar Theater, he was not paid to talk about the Nayarit, but he would talk about the Nayarit, you know, in between sets. And he'd tell the audience, I don't know about you, but after this, I'm going to the Nayarit. I'm going to have that Chile Colorado. I'm going to have that Chile Verde. I'm going to get my favorite, the Manche Manteles, which is, you know, those tablecloth staining ribs, uh, which referred to it's, it, that splattery sauce that they had. And in every single one of my interviews, when I asked people what made the Nayari an urban anchor, they all said, well, the food, of course. 
And some might elaborate and talk a lot about the food. And then some might go on to talk about the atmosphere, but uh, the food was always the number one answer. How did placemaking take place in Nayarit's restaurant? What did it mean for Mexican-Americans to experience Nayarit? One of the things that I really wanted to get across with the book was the way that Mexicans have long been placemakers. Um, I come from you know, the field of urban studies. And so we have talked about um, placemaking for a long time. Um, and I wanna mobilize that rich scholarship to center who gets to define a place and how they do so, right? So oftentimes we talk about placemaking in terms of um, only public space, but public space can also be hostile to marginalized groups, racialized groups, people like the ethnic Mexican immigrants that this book chronicles. And so I wanted to get at semi-public spaces like restaurants that provided a safer and yet no less vital site to host and shape this community life. And so I'm trying to get at a different definition of placemaking that's more capacious and can encompass uh, the kind of work that immigrants did. Um, and so, you know, what did placemaker, you know, what kinds of places uh, did placemakers then make? You know, restaurants like my grandmother's, beauty salons, barber shops bars, coffee shops, places where community members can congregate on a regular, sometimes daily basis, and sometimes for hours at a time. And so, you know, it's the way that these sites are also places where you have countless small acts of everyday life that build and sustain these effective relationships. Uh, the way that we go to restaurants, we eat and laugh, we gossip, we debate, um, Last night I went to a restaurant, you know, I, we just finished our semester. I went to what I would consider a new urban anchor in Echo Park, Bacchetti's. And I went with my colleagues. And at some point, apparently my husband even got on my computer to see if he could use find my phone to see where I was because you know, I had my phone in my purse. I wasn't looking. I and mean, we, we had a basically a four hour dinner. Wow. <laughs> right. It's just like, what have we been missing during the pandemic? We've been missing restaurants. We've been missing food, but we've been missing getting together, celebrating, claiming space, forging community. Wow. Can you explain the different kinds of customer experiences at Nayarit? How did Nayarit foster community? I have a, I had a wonderful colleague when I was at UCSD, Luis Alvarez, who just um, published his own beautiful book. And because it's new, I'm not remembering the title. Um, but when I first wrote my first piece on the book as an article, I shared it with him. And he'd written another beautiful book on Zoot Suits, on the Zoot Suit um, uh, rights in Los Angeles and looking at, at this you know, cultural moment and the ways in which Mexicans were policed. And he said, how is a restaurant different than a dance hall? You know, like where the zoot, zoot suitors mm -hmm. went. And I thought, oh, the, the um, question that launched a book, right? Because that motivated me for a long time. So to your question of, you know, 
the, the customers and, the, and this life and how it fostered it. It depends what, what time of day we're talking about. It depends what day of the week we're talking about. So during the day, you had white collar workers, you know, many coming from downtown who might come in groups um, and have lunch there. After work, you might have workers who just stopped by for a beer and a taco. Um, on the weekends, you might have celebrities who came in, you know, Rita Moreno, Marlon Brando, band leaders like Tito Puente, Abby Lane. But you might also have the band leaders from like the local clubs, you know, Club Virginia, who came in. And on Sundays, you had families come in. For many people, this was their Sunday restaurant. It's where they dressed their children up in their Sunday best. They came as families. They stayed for hours. One of my interviewees, Alexis McSween, talked about that on Fridays, everybody came to her parents' house um, or one of the, the homes in the group um, that her parents were a part of, you know, like two, uh, three couples. So, you know, the, the, this little group and they would play cards and they would stay up. But on Sundays, they met at the Nayari. And so they might have dinner together. Or they might just go around the same time and each family might be at their own table but then they might be, you know, hang, switching seats, talking to each other across the tables. Uh, so it, it was a place that had a lot of nightlife. If you went to the Nayeri after the clubs, um, but it was also the place that you could take your children to and, and make the sign of the cross and where you celebrated your baptisms, your first communion. So it was that kind of place that fostered a sense of community, forged a sense of community for the entire community. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Can you comment on the workers and employees at the Nayarit restaurant? Who were they? How were they treated? The workers at the Nayarit were the heart of the restaurant. Um, they were the ones that, you know, people went to and wanted to, you know, go to their station uh, they wanted to be regulars because they knew their order. 
And many of these workers were people that my grandmother helped immigrate from the state of Nayarit. Uh, my grandmother, as I mentioned, came to Los Angeles as a sola, as a single woman. She didn't have family there. And perhaps because of that, she wanted to give a leg up to other single women or divorced women or single mothers. Um, perhaps because she knew what it was like to live on the margin, she wanted to also help out uh, gay, gay men, mainly, uh, that she helped to emigrate from the state of Nayadi. So because she had a business, she was able to hire attorneys and she would have them write sponsorship letters that then the family and friends in Nayadi could use to obtain a visa. And so not only were they... Not only were they, um, you know, did she help them immigrate? She helped them immigrate as documented workers. And the reason that I mentioned that is not to say that, you know, to stigmatize undocumented in any way, because she did also hire undocumented. But by giving them that leg up, the workers were not just back of house workers, uh, these immigrants, they were front of house workers. They were waiters, they were bartenders, they were hostesses, they were cashiers, they were able to to, you know, um, to make tips. They, they spent their entire careers there. You know, uh, once they were employed, many of them stayed for years and years. And one of the things that she would ask people to do if she helped immigrate them was when many, you know, many could live in her home. Um, and by the time then other people settled and established their own homes, they might offer those homes. So people had a soft landing, but she also asked that they take uh, classes uh, to learn English because she did not. So perhaps she saw how that disadvantaged her. And I asked one of the employees who my grandmother didn't help immigrate, immigrate uh, Lupe Reyes, like, wait a minute, but you never learned to speak English. How did you communicate with the customers? And she said, I didn't speak English, but I spoke food. Wow. What are your book's lessons about immigration? So maybe one way to answer that is to tell you uh, a story, and it's something I've been working on, on what I've been writing lately. So in 1994, I went to graduate school at the University of Michigan. It was my first year, and I got a job as a cocktail waitress at a sports bar. <laughs> it worked wow. with, yeah, it worked with my you know, I figured it gave me the flexibility of being able to go to school and study and do everything. And, you know, just for Friday and Saturday nights. And there was this one day that I was serving a customer. Uh, oh, the reason I bring this up is because then you, you were in contact with people that weren't from the university, uh, weren't as, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, politically correct. And he, he kept all the stirs for the, his drink. It was a vodka cranberry and he kept all the stirs. And at one point I asked, why are you keeping the stirs? And he said, that way I know how many I've ordered. And so you can't cheat me. Okay. That should have been a tip. <laughs> and then at one point in the evening, he said, you know, your people aren't all bad. And I said, excuse me, it's your people, you know, Mexicans, they're not all bad. See my family immigrated here when the country wasn't full. Um, but that's not the case with your people, but they're not all bad. And so let's think of the context. 1994, it's a time of increased heightened immig immigrant backlash in, Los in California. 
the voters are voting on Proposition 187, which would have denied immigrants, undocumented immigrants, access to any kind of uh, public service, which really means education and public health, because they're not, you know, in any significant way tapping into welfare as undocumented. Um, and as he told me the story of his grandparents, it was basically my grandmother's story. So here they were European immigrants that immigrated in the early 20th century that are able to assimilate into whiteness that we don't think about as undocumented, that we don't think about as you know, undeserving. And here's my grandmother that immigrated during the same time period. And yet, you know, even for me, third generation, my son, fourth generation, we still get asked where we're from. Um, it doesn't work the same way for Latino immigrants. And so what I always want my work to show is the structural components of immigration, the ways in which people's lives are shaped, not just by individual choice, but by laws, by policies, by cultural narratives that are hundreds of years old, uh, as well as that when we talk about immigration, we are talking about race. We often think about race in the US in terms of uh, African-Americans. We don't often think about it in terms of Asian-Americans, of you know, Arab-Americans, of Latino-Americans. And yet all these groups are racialized in relationship to one another. So the two big lessons uh, that run through my work in terms of race and citizenship are about race being a, a structural and cultural narrative, you know, immigration being shaped by these things, as well as immigration and our experiences of it and the laws that shape it as being relational. How did Nayarit change American culinary history? I think I'm going to skip that question, Ari, because I think we kind of got okay. at it a I'm little sorry. bit with the LA. Oh, no, of course. Thank okay. you. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, can you describe to our listeners the culture, geography, and demography of the Echo Park neighborhood in Los Angeles? Can you tell us about it so that listeners who have never been there can understand what it is like? Yes, Echo Park is a cultural and geographic crossroads. And so it's northwest of um, downtown Los Angeles. And it is, you know, accessible. Um, it's in between, you know, major freeways, it has major bus routes, Sunset Boulevard that runs from downtown Los Angeles to the beach runs through it. And so, you know, it is a place that people grew up in. Maybe one of the ways to also uh, get a sense of how it's different than other Latino areas and why it's important to write a book about Echo Park is, let me give you a contrasting story. So when I was a graduate student, one of my other jobs, when I moved back to Los Angeles was to work as a substitute teacher for LA Unified. And I ended up getting a, a long-term substitute job at Huntington Park High School, which is very different than Echo Park. It's in Southeast LA. Um, my many days I was late because I would get stuck behind a train running through there because there were train tracks dividing that area. 
uh, I, there are parts of my commute that you could you could smell um, a terrible stench in the air because there's a dog food factory. Wow. Um, my students, many of them immigrants, worked swing shifts at the local factory uh, making boxes. You know, it was a very kind of contained geographically and culturally experience. Whereas in Echo Park, because of its cultural crossroads, as I mentioned, with its long-term history of people that had lived on the margins um, of institutions like Amy Temple McPherson's, you know, a church that brought in people from all over of my grandmother's restaurants, as well as other immigrant restaurants like Nicola's, uh, like uh, the Frères, the French restaurant, uh, the Italian deli, all these kinds, you know, the, the Pioneer Market, um, the Finer's clothing store, all these places that people felt connected to one another, but then could also easily leave the neighborhood by taking a bus, um, by, you know, a short you know, car ride. You know, Hollywood is six miles down Sunset Boulevard. Um, in between Hollywood and Echo Park is Silver Lake, a historically gay and lesbian neighborhood, a bohemian neighborhood. And so all these things afforded people in Echo Park a, a life that they could live across racial and ethnic lines, as well as to some degree with some cosmopolitanism. What was El Eco de Nayarit? Why is this publication significant to the story of the Nayarit restaurant? El Eco de Nayarit was a newspaper from the state of Nayarit. And when I was writing this book, I kept running into dead ends. I would go to the archives. I couldn't find information on Echo Park. I would read La Opinion. I couldn't find information on people from Nayarit. I couldn't readily find people from uh, information from people in Nayarit um, or Echo Park or as much working class Mexicans. I um, would look at the consulate records. I looked at the consulate records, which were very helpful for the twenties and thirties. And that I'd looked up for my first book, Fit to be Citizens, um, which you know, they're, they're found at the, the Secretary of Exterior Relations in Mexico. But for this book, those sources just were not helpful. And then one day, I had this image of my aunt, my tia Chayo, um, sitting on her front porch in Echo Park, reading the Echo newspaper. And that's because every Nayarita person from the state of Nayarit that I knew subscribed to the Echo. So even though they might've been living here 10, 20, 30 years, they had that subscription to the newspaper. And in El Echo newspaper, there was a column called La Rueda Ferris, the Ferris wheel. It was kind of like the gossip section of El Echo. Um, it was kind of like, um, almost like a Facebook for, you know, for the times where you would learn uh, you know, people would buy these advertisements for their anniversary issues. 
And it was, you know, like also like putting like a yearbook ad, right? Where, hi, I'm so-and-so and I am now living in Los Angeles. Uh, and I've started a furniture business or my grandmother, I've started a restaurant. Um, and so it was a way of understanding the, the community of Nayaritas, los de afuera, you know, those who had, who had immigrated by reading this newspaper, because so many of those immigrants from Nayarit remain tethered to their homeland. And so El Eco newspaper was a very important instrument and in having them remain tethered. Um, the other thing was that, you know, they would also report on who went, who visited Nayarit from Los Angeles, you know, so-and-so passed through and, you know, that where the ferries column, uh, so-and-so sent a postcard. And so sometimes people learned, it, immigrants from uh, Nayarit and Los Angeles learned what was going on in Los Angeles, not through La Opinion, but through El Echo. And so I think it's a remarkable testament to our methodologies, how we tell our stories, what kind of sources we use, and that even if we're doing Latino history, Latino studies in the US, you still need to understand those relationships, those ties to Mexico, and to see what sources we can use to tell the story of Latinos in the US by using sources from outside the US. Who were Les Frères Tailly? Can you describe the importance of the Tailly restaurant in your story? This is one of these fun LA things where everybody pronounces it differently. Uh, so it's a French name. And so, you know, Les Frères Tailly is, it might be simply known that we call, everybody calls it something different. So I call it Tay. some people call it uh, Tailly, some people call it Tex. <laughs> Um, but most people in LA will just call it taste and it's still there. Uh, and I think it's what I really wanted to do with this book was highlight, you know, the, my grandmother's restaurant, but really highlight it in order for people to see that there are many urban anchors, uh, in Los Angeles, but in their own neighborhoods. And I want it to be a model for people to then go out and do the history of their neighborhood. And so, um, I could have, this was the hardest chapter to write, talk about Taze in my first chapter, which is the history of Echo Park. And it was the hardest chapter to write because I couldn't write everything I wanted to about um, these urban anchors like Taze. Since, you know, when you're writing a book, you only let in the material that supports that story. But Taze, somebody could write their own history of Taze. It's also a family owned restaurant. It's been run since 1927. It started in downtown LA and it served these traditional French family style meals at affordable prices. It's where my family also went for special occasions. Uh, they had a loyal customer base, like so much of their stories, like the Nayari, they had those downtown office workers. They, had, uh, they have employees that have worked there for decades, um, many of them Latino, at the Los Angeles Times has covered these Latino workers. Again, these workers that are at the heart of these urban anchors. And so um, it's, 
it's a way telling the story of Taze is a way of telling the story of urban anchors in Los Angeles. Um, and, you know, their workers went to the Nayarit. When they were done with their shifts, they might go to the Nayarit and they might, um, you know, have, have a beer, have a margarita. I interviewed one of their waiters um, and he was so sweet. He talked about the end of his shift, he would go to the Nayarit and I explained to him, you know, my connection to my mom, you know, my that it was my grandmother's restaurant, but that my mom, Maria, was her right-hand person. And he knew exactly who she was. And here was, you know, Bernard, and I don't know how to pronounce his last name, um, Inshups, uh, who said, that was your mom? And, you know, he's by now about 80. And he kind of looked down and just looked up at me with the, you know, for the sly look, he goes, she was quite a looker. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Isn't that something? <laughs> you allude to several celebrities who frequented Nayarit, Rita Moreno, Emilio Fernandez, Juan Marijal, Cal Tiader, Javier Cugat, Tito Puente, Maria Candelaria, and others. Can you tell us about them? To those who are not familiar with these names, can you describe their biographies and their relationship to Nayarit? One of the things about um, studying this time period in Latino studies is that we also need to remember that even famous people, actors, musicians, athletes, that they also were discriminated against. And so the Nayari and places like it, these kinds of urban anchors offered solace, not just to hardworking, working class Mexicans who you know, might have to wear a uniform and not be able to speak English at their jobs during the day, but also to famous people. And so you had people come through um, both American and Latino stars uh, who, you know, were happy to go and be able to be themselves, use the front entrance. Uh, and I, you know, here I'm not being hyperbolic. We have ball players that came through, athletes that came through that when they traveled to different parts of town were not able to, you know, stay in the same hotels as their teammates, stay in the same, you know, eat at the same restaurants. And so you had people like the Puerto Rican actress and singer Rita Moreno, whose portrayal of Anita in the West Side Story gave so many Latinas, including me, their first chance to see someone who looked like them in an important Hollywood role. You had the Mexican cinema star Emilio Fernandez, nicknamed El, El Indio. Um, and you know, there's that rumor that the Oscar statue is modeled after him. It, it turns out it's not, but uh, you know, you know, famous. Uh, actor, writer, director, uh, musicians and singers came to the restaurant. One of the things that my grandmother would do is she would have the employees go put flyers on the windshield of cars at clubs and at concerts that said, you know, come to the Nayarit after the show. And so you know, the, the audience came, the musicians came, even famous musicians, Tito Puente, you know, who's known as the king of Latin music, Xavier Cugat, the Spanish-American band leader, 
um, Abby Lane, the uh, Jewish singer, dancer, and actress, the Latin jazz musician, Cal Jader, um, baseball players, and you know, Dodger Stadium, I left out one very important urban anchor for uh, Echo Park. Dodger Stadium basically sits in Echo Park's backyard. And so, you know, many Dodger players came to the um, restaurant. So in the 60s, there were when Dodger Stadium opened, there weren't very many Latino players. So the Latino players that came, baseball players that came to the restaurant were from other teams and they weren't necessarily Mexican. They were Puerto Rican. They were Dominican. And one of my interviewers said, you always knew when the Dodger game was over, because that's when you would see the, the ball players. Uh, you know, the Dominican ball players, the brothers, Felipe, Jesus, and, and Maddie Lou, they came. Um, I was heartbroken, I, you know, as when you do all interviews, you have to fact check everything and you have to contextualize it within a larger narrative. So my mom had always said that she was friends with uh, the ball player, Juan Marichal, from the Dominican Republic. But as I did my research, I realized in the years that she would have known him and would have been friends that he wasn't actually playing for the Dodgers. He was a Giants player, you know, and since I'm from LA, I bleed blue. Uh, I was like, oh, you were best friends with a with a Giants player? Okay. Uh, Marlon Brando and, you know, the the story, the oft-told story about Marlon Brando in our family is that he would flirt with my aunt, my tia Velia, a former beauty queen from the state of uh, Nayarit from her hometown of Acaponeta, who started working at the restaurant as a cashier when she was 16. And she, you know, she was enrolled in Belmont High School. She was learning English, but didn't have enough English under her belt when she went up to my grandmother after the restaurant and closed and said, I'm going out with, um, with Marlon Brando. He said he wants to make love to me. And my grandmother's like, do you even know what that means? She's like, I think it means he wants to give me a kiss. She's like, that is not what that means. And you will not be going out with Marlon Brando. Wow. What, what a memory. <laughs> you write as follows. There are no stories told by my family members about that day, no surviving ads, no photos. From what I know about Doña Natalia herself, my guess is that she treated that day like any other. She was 50 years old. She likely dressed in her usual work attire with her black hair in a relaxed upsweep. She favored fashionable dresses made of practical hard-wearing fabrics a 1950s swing dress, a form-fitting top, and a flowing T-length skirt, nothing too constricting or flashy. Her makeup in Julie would likewise have been simple and distasteful, appropriate for facing the public, but not elaborate enough to disturb her when working in a hot kitchen. She probably arrived well before the restaurant opened, made sure that the sidewalk was swept. The chairs were precisely in place and the vegetables were properly chopped. Then she propped open the doors, letting in the fresh air, confident that customers would come. Can you say more about Doña Natalia's appearance and more about her personality? One of the questions, oh, I'll start with, she was a very reserved person. And so one of the things I think that made the restaurant successful 
was that she was more of the back of the house person. She dealt with the business. She dealt with um, training all the workers. Whereas my mom, Maria, was the front of the house person. And so she was the one that greeted everybody, um, remembered your name, smiled at you, which again is a political act because so often Mexican workers could go their whole you know, day without really being acknowledged, especially if they're in a, a service role, uh, service, you know, doing service labor. And so here was a place where people were treated as somebodies, as insiders. Uh, but my grandmother was not that person. She was, you know, she was comfortable in the back of the house. She had sat on a stool in between the kitchen and the dining room, and she would vigilar. You know, she would she would look at every dish that came out, made sure it was piping hot, made sure that it there was no splattering on the dish, that it looked good, um, that the quality was up to her standards. She was so reserved that when I interviewed her eldest granddaughter, Rosana, who knew her, she said that she, um, when they would visit her, they wouldn't visit her at her home. They would visit her at the restaurant because that's where she always was. They would enter through the back, through the kitchen, you know, where there was ample parking, and they would look at the counter where she usually had her purse. And if her purse wasn't there, she actually breathed a little sigh of relief because they were scared of her. So, um, you know, people often have, you know, people that have read the book have often asked me, well, you know, sure, she was reserved in public, but what about in private? Uh, did she have a different personality? And I think that's interesting because I think if it was a story of my grandfather's restaurant, we wouldn't have that gendered expectation. But, you know, she, her number one goal was to run this restaurant, make a profit, help her family members out, send money home for, uh, you know, civil projects in Mexico, which is what so many immigrants do through their remittances. And to, you know, help other immigrants get the head start. She, she didn't. And, you know, working in a, in a restaurant can be very dangerous. Floors are slippery. Trays are heavy. You know, there are corners where you're walking, um, carrying a heavy tray. And when you turn the corner, there's somebody else doing the same thing. You could crash into each other. Uh, knives are sharp. Oil is hot. And she employed people that had no restaurant experience and had to train them from scratch. So she was a very no-nonsense person. And yet every single person I interviewed, both here in the U.S. and in Mexico, uh, said, but that, she, you know, they always felt respected by her and that they always felt that she treated them fairly and that they were grateful for the employment and that they could move up in the restaurant if they wished to. Um, they're, they're the one thing that I think is interesting, you know, when I think about, I think of her so no nonsense, but there's one thing that I realized, you know, what, it gives me another insight of her personality. And this was an interesting part of the project too, was that since I hadn't met her, I couldn't interview her. I had to think of other ways to get at her personality. So through photos, I could see that 
while she worked hard and she was a no-nonsense person, she paid a lot of attention to her personality or to her wardrobe. So, you know, um, she always had her hair done. She had her nails done. While her dresses were simple um, and hard-wearing fabrics, they were beautiful. Um, and, you know, I think she understood those politics of respectability as, you know, like a, 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 a five-foot-one dark skin Mexican woman who didn't speak Spanish, she understood she had to signal, to telegraph, to communicate that she was someone not to be uh, messed with. But there's one thing that um, looking at what she owned that I was able to, you know, I, it makes me wonder. So when I got married, my mom gave me her dishes and she collected these dishes from the ceramics plant in Atwater. It's uh, many people are familiar with them. It's those hand painted dishes. Uh, hers had apples. Some have some have roses. Some might have cherries. And it's these hand painted dishes with these leaves around the edges. And as a kid watching I, I Love Lucy, I recognize that they were Cardos had the same dish. <laughs> Of the same dishes, you know, theirs was with the ivy pattern. And I watched that show religiously. I grew up uh, only speaking Spanish. It's how I learned to speak English. And those dishes to me say a lot about my reserved grandmother. And so I'll read you this little part from the book. Says, she wanted elegant tableware and she got it for herself piece by piece. I like to imagine her setting her place and enjoying the sheen and the color of those dishes, not just as a sign of aspiration, but also as a way of embracing the place where she lived and asserting her belonging. That's very moving. It's the first time I've been able to read it without crying. Or I, I now like cry at so many parts of the book when I read them, <laughs> especially wow. this one. when people, when people come, people came over for dinner the weekend that this launched because uh, it launched at the LA times book fair. And so a lot of people came into town and we hosted a dinner. And so I read this part and I cried. <laughs> Wow. Wow. Natalia sounds like a saint in my perspective. I don't, I don't know if I, you know, I think my grandmother did many things to help people, but um, I, as I said in my, my, one of my previous responses, you know, I really look at the structural conditions. So for example, she gave many gay men a head start at the Nayeti. Uh, one of the workers that I interviewed that, you know, is still part of our, our fictive kin, he talked about how my grandmother also helped set him up in an apartment, you know, because he was a new immigrant. He didn't have credit. He didn't have, you know, all, all the kinds of things uh, that he would need to look like a good risk uh, when renting an apartment. So she co-signed for him. And he said, to this day, my gas bill is in her name. <laughs> Um, and yet there were limits to her acceptance, uh, around sexuality. So this is an example, again, how I think, you know, we live our, even when we live our lives the best we can, there are still structural limits at times. So she did discourage those same gay men that she helped from being out at work. Uh, she asked them not to behave or dress in such a way that customers might readily read them as gay you know, does this mean she's a bad person? Um, I mean, maybe she was influenced by a conservative approach to sexuality rooted in Mexican culture, though, you know, she was not a, a big churchgoer. 
Um, maybe it was a way of protecting her business and the community, knowing that she could attract the attention of the police, should it be seen as a gay meeting spot. Uh, but whatever her, her reasoning was, you know, she, her, her attitude was, you know, puede ser, pero no ved. So those are the kinds of moments also that came up in the interviews that I think also showed that, you know, people are, uh, live multidimensional lives that are also shaped by structural forces. How did Nayarit change and evolve after Doña Natalia's death in 1969? You know, running a, a restaurant is difficult. And I think what made that restaurant work so well was my grandmother working the back of the house and my mom working the front of the house. And so after my grandmother passed, it just you know simply wasn't the same. Um, also, my mom married, had me. And so she eventually sold the, the lease to the Nayari. What was Natalia's funeral like? My They held the service. Um, at, at the church uh, at Alvera Street. And so that is, you know, a church that's very well known in Los Angeles. And the uh, head of the hometown association of the hometown association of, of Nayeri uh, spoke at it. And to me, it was interesting that, you know, my grandmother never never got involved with the hometown association. They would meet at the restaurant, but you know, to me, I feel like she thought like I have my own hometown association. It's called my <laughs> it's called my restaurant. Um, but you know, it was you know, Tani Lopez was a president of this club Nayeri, and there were so many mourners there that they couldn't even all fit in the church. Um, the, one of the radio stations, Radio Express, played Las Golandrinas, you know, this idea of going home in her honor. Uh, El Eco wrote about her funeral and the many lives she had touched in both Mexico and California. And so, you know, by the time that she um, passed, she had already helped dozens of, of people by sponsoring them, by giving them jobs by allowing them to live in her home. And it's one of these examples that even when people pass, but also when businesses uh, close, their imprint uh, remains. The connections that those urban anchors and those placemakers made remain. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for our dialogue today. I'm humbled to be in communication with such an erudite person and the author of such a marvelous book. And I say that with a full and sincere heart. I thank you for such a wonderful, well-prepared, insightful interview. It was my pleasure. Thank you. I could not be more grateful for your time and could not be more grateful for everything I learned from this magnificent book. As we bring our dialogue to a close today, I am your host on the New Books Network, Ari Barbalat. I have been in dialogue today with Dr. Natalia Molina. She is Distinguished Professor of American Studies and Ethnicity at University of Southern California and will be Interim Research Director at the Huntington Library this summer. We have been discussing her new book, 
a place at the Nayarit, how a Mexican restaurant nourished a community, published by University of California Press, 2022. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.